0: invite you to open your Bibles to 1st Peter chapter 2, 1st Peter chapter 2, and tonight we're going to look at the doctrine of the church, and we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read the first 12 verses. Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would come and that you would speak clearly, that you would teach us about your precious church. I ask that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let your words remain, and may they change us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Defining church is not an easy task. For instance, if you meet with a few of your friends at Starbucks and order your $4 lattes and You're sitting around and you're talking and one of your friends just kind of just unloads on you and tells you what a horrible time they're having. And you pull out your Bible and you say, well, you know, gosh, I was just reading this in Scripture. And you encourage them and you talk about how God's Word has that effect in your life. Is that church? Was that church there? If you're driving down the road and you're listening to a John Piper podcast... And you're just really getting so much out of it. And when it's done, you put in a praise CD and you were just singing the top of your lungs. Is that church? Did you just have your own personal church? Or maybe a group of 50 people or so, they meet in a building. And this building has a steeple and everything. It has the word church in front of it. And and an ordained minister, he gets up there and he talks about love. and, And he talks about tolerance and peace, and how we all need to just be loving one another, and, and you close in a song that talks about how love is the answer to everything, and you leave. Is that church? I mean, it was an ordained pastor there. Um, you know, if you gave, it was tax deductible. You know, you had, you had the word church, there was a steeple and everything, but was that church? Uh, it's a word we use all of the time, but it's it's actually where this somewhat hard to really understand. And it has a broad meaning in Scripture. If you were to look at the book of Acts, you're going to find that if a group of Christians gathered into a person's home, that was called a church. You'll also find that uh, Paul, he would describe a church just being all the Christians within a city. And so he would write letters to the church of Thessalonica, or to the church of God in Corinth. Sometimes the word church can mean not just to a particular uh, home or to a particular city, but it could be even broadened to mean all Christians from all time. Church, and we just uh, confessed that when we did the Apostles' Creed, and when we said we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and that, that does not mean that we believe in the Pope or the papacy. The word Catholic there just means universal. We believe in the one great universal church of all believers of all time. Church is a big word. Historically, the church has been defined as having two characteristics. It's it's a gathering of people to hear the word of God rightly preached and the ordinances rightly administered. Those two things. Those two things happen and you've got a church. The word of God rightly preached and the, the ordinances rightly administered. And you can look at John Calvin... Uh, John Wesley, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, they will all agree on that definition of a church. That's what has to happen in order for there to be a church. And so you have to have the word of God rightly divided. And Martin Luther, he said that when the word of God is rightly divided, the gospel is always preached. And he he joined those two hand in hand. And so uh, for a pastor to get up there and rightly divide, the Bible means the gospel will be proclaimed. So I can't just get up here and give you good morals. I can't give you, you know, a good inspirational talk, you know, rah-rah rah, go out there, reach Woodlawn, go minister to the poor, all that. That will not be church. And that's why, you know, there's a number of, of really large church buildings full of people on Sundays that don't, when when the Word of God's not rightly divided, I would not call that a church. It's just a gathering. In addition to the word of God being rightly taught, it says the ordinances they have to be rightly administered. And the ordinances, that we, ordinances we believe in are two it's the Lord's Supper and it's baptism. Those two ordinances need to be rightly administered. And so, if this is one of the reasons why places like the Salvation Army, which is a great institution, it's not a church, they don't serve communion, they don't have baptisms. Why, if you you meet together with a group of Christians and you have great teaching, but but over a year's time, you've never once celebrated the Lord's Supper, it's not a church. Those things must be present. That's the bare minimum of what a church is. A healthy church is a lot more than these things. It's going to have church discipline. Um, It's going to have a lot of mercy ministries. It's going to have different things. But the bare minimum is this. And God forms the church. He pulls the people together. That's one of the reasons why churches fight so much over stupid things like carpets and hymnals and and whatever. The reason they do is because you're you're full of like people who would never normally gather together. A lot of you have nothing in common, but God pulls you all together and He says, "All right, I'm forming a church. It's not a country club in which we all just kind of, yeah, I believe in this. I want to be a part of this, and we all pull together our same backgrounds and our same ideals, and we're like, that's us. That's not a church." God pulls you together. Of course, there's going to be tension. Let's look at a church's purpose. We know what it is, but now what is its purpose? And to do this, we're going to have to take a really big step back. And I want us to look at all of the Bible to see what the purpose of the Bible is, or the purpose of the church is. Um, last week we we looked at how God created Adam and Eve put them in paradise, put them in a garden. Everything was great. The relationship with one another was perfect. The relationship with God was life-giving and perfect. It was beautiful. All creation was working in in perfect harmony. The The biblical word for that is shalom, in which there is the spiritual and the emotional and the physical peace and harmony of all things. There was shalom there. And then man sins, they disobey God's one commandment, and it is all shattered. Guilt and shame come in. The relationship with each other is fractured. The relationship with God is fractured. A curse falls on the entire world. Work now becomes burdensome. It's toilsome. Thorns and thistles are growing up. And also in this shalom of the world, this harmony is shattered. It's broken. And Adam and Eve, they're kicked out of the garden. And and we looked at last week, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangel, the very first hint of the gospel. In which God says, okay, it is not always going to be this way. Yes, all of creation is under a curse. Everything is broken, but I will bring redemption. And it's the first hint of the gospel. And then we see through the rest of Scripture this plan of redemption unfolding. Genesis 12, this plan of redemption begins to take a little bit of focus when God calls Abraham. Abraham wasn't a righteous guy. Um, He came from a family of idolaters. There was nothing about him that God said, hmm, great person, I'll choose him. God just said, Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abraham. and, And let me just read to you. Uh, what God promised Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families on earth shall be blessed. All of the families on earth shall be blessed. Abraham, I want you to start having a relationship with me. I want you to start having faith and through this, I'm going to build a nation from your descendants and this nation, this group of people is going to begin in some way breaking down the curse. It's going to begin blessing the families. No, no longer a curse, but a blessing through your descendants. And so Abraham goes and after this calling Instantly, children started singing the worst, most annoying song ever. Uh, Father Abraham had many sons, and you've, you've got to, for some reason, you've got to do all these motions. And um, Actually, probably the Lord told Noah to build an archearchy. It might be slightly more annoying. Uh, Caroline, she sings that song all the time, and it's actually, it is an annoying song, but it has good theology. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so are you. The church, we see that the church is spiritual descendants of Abraham. We are his children. And that means the calling that was given to Abraham is our calling. That we are to be a nation. That we are to be a blessing to the world. That we are to see God's plan of redemption unfolding through us. We have the same calling. We're also to be sojourners in this life. And we're to go around blessing the world. We don't have time to go into all of Abraham's life, but you see that early on he understood his calling. Genesis 19, when God comes down to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, what does Abraham do? No, Lord, don't. And he intercedes. He says, Don't destroy the city. And he keeps interceding. He's seeking the welfare of the city. He wants to bless the city, not destroy it. After about 20 years or so, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has Joseph. Once again, you see in the life of Joseph, um, how God is using Abraham's descendants to bless the world. When Egypt was under a severe famine, it was Joseph who had prepared for it. Joseph who was raised up to power, who prevented all of Egypt and all of the neighboring regions to not starve to death. He was blessing the nations. He was seeking their welfare. He was fulfilling his calling as a descendant of Abraham. 400 years later, God raises up Moses to lead Abraham's descendants, which were now in slavery, to to lead them out of Egypt. And once they left Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, and we looked at this a lot a few months ago, and God gives them the law. He gives them the law, but this is what he says when he gives them the law. He says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. I'm giving you this law so that you might be a kingdom of priests. Not so you have all of these barriers that we think of the law, things that just make us strange and isolated to the world. It says, no, I'm giving you this law so that you might be a kingdom of priests. A priest is someone who points to God. A priest is someone who intercedes for others. God enters a special relationship with Israel so that the world might be blessed. After they received the law, they wander in the desert for 40 years. And then finally, Joshua, he leads them into the promised land. And um, God does another miracle. He parts the Jordan River and and all of Israel passes through. And and Joshua says, let's set up memorial stones here so that we remember this event. And in Joshua chapter 4, he says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you, so that all of the people of the earth... May know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And so he put up a memorial, not just for Israel, but so that all of the world might know the mighty power of God to save. And so the people of Israel, they, they go into the promised land. They, they establish themselves there. And it's not too long before they finally set up some kings. And, you know, you have King Saul, you have King David, you have King Solomon. Solomon decides to build a temple a place where people can come to pray, a special place where God will come and meet His people. And in 1 Kings 8, Solomon says this at the dedication of the temple. When a foreigner comes to this house and prays, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. And may they fear you as do your people Israel. So Solomon, he understands that the reason he builds this temple is not just for themselves. It's a temple for all of the nations. All of the nations that they might know God, not just Israel. And you find the same theme throughout all of the prophets and through the Psalms. I I, I just kind of, you could pick any Psalm. I went to Psalm 96 and I thought, well, I'll just kind of go chapter by chapter and listen to this. Psalm 96 says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all of the earth, declare his glory among the nations. One chapter later, Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 98, one chapter later, says he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Psalm 99, the Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all of the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All of the earth, serve Him with gladness. And you could go on and on. All the Psalms are, yes, they appreciate what God is doing with Israel, but they realize that that's just part of the plan for Him blessing all of the world. All of creation. We don't have time to go through all of the prophets, and so I'll look at the greatest prophet, Isaiah. Isaiah 25, he says, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, and He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And if you look at um, the reasons that Israel was destroyed in um, 722 B.C. and also in 586 B.C., they were destroyed. It's because they didn't fulfill their calling. They, They started committing idolatry. And then they became so inward focused that they no longer uh, were a friend to the widow. They no longer gave to the poor. They no longer fought for justice. They no longer were instruments of mercy. And if you read the prophets, that's what the accusations are. Over and over. Saying, you're just like the world. You're not a light unto them. So God destroyed them. And when Babylon came in to destroy them and the people of Israel were sent out in exile... Even in exile, God wanted them to stick with the plan and their calling. And he tells Jeremiah, as as all of these exiles are in Babylon, this pagan city, forced there against their will, living with the enemy, Jeremiah 29 says, seek the shalom, seek the welfare of the city. Yes, seek the welfare of the people who have persecuted you. Seek their good. Be a light unto the nations. When we come to the New Testament, we hear Jesus say in John 10, when He's talking to disciples, Israelites here, He says, I want you to know that I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them all in also. They're going to listen to My voice so that there will be one flock. There will be one shepherd. I will bring all of the world in under Me. In John 17, Jesus prays at his disciples that they would be unified on earth. And it says, the reason I want you unified is so so that all of the earth may believe. The reason I want you to stick together, the reason I want you to love one another with a deep, deep love, is so that all of the world will see. And as Jesus is ascending into heaven after his resurrection, in his famous words, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Go over all the earth. And then he told his disciples, but you need to wait. You can't just do this with your own strength. You need to wait my spirit's going to come upon you. Wait and pray. And so they go into that upper room and, and they're, they're praying and they're waiting and they're praying and they're waiting. And then the strangest thing in the world happens in Acts chapter 2. Tongues of fire comes out. I have no clue what that means. I don't know if it's literal tongues, but I don't know. Something miraculous, crazy happened. They are filled with his spirit. Peter rushes out like a man on fire. He's just running out and he just starts preaching. Just starts Preaching. And he preaches from Joel 2 which says this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy says that God will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. On everyone. And everybody hears it in their own native tongue. But the disciples, you think the disciples kind of instantly change you know, after Jesus is resurrected and after Pentecost but they're still somewhat dim-witted because they don't go into all the nations. They don't start spreading out. They actually stay right there in Jerusalem. They've just been filled with the power of the Spirit. God's told them, go and make disciples of all the nations. And they sit in Jerusalem. So God says, I've got to scatter them. So he brings in persecution to scatter them. Stephen is stoned. And when Stephen is stoned, it says that all the disciples of Jesus fled. They scattered. They scattered. It says they preach the gospel all the places that they went. The gospel starts going out into all the nations. In Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles, they have their own Pentecost experience. After God gives Peter a vision of that blanket coming down with all this, um, I mean, I would call it soul food. I mean, you got pig's feet in there. (laughs) You got all these things that a Jew's like, there's no way I'm going to touch God says, eat it. I've made it clean. He doesn't quite get what this means. And then he has a vision and he goes over to Cornelius, who's this Gentile, and there's all these Gentiles around. And then they have Pentecost with Gentiles in Acts 10. Peter's like, oh, I get it. You mean Pentecost just wasn't for us. We're to bless the world. Bless the world. And Peter would always forget that. Paul says later, he goes, you know what? I went up to Peter, and I opposed him to his face. I love that. Because he forgot that he was supposed to be going to the Gentiles. Actually, the very first church controversy that we have is in Acts 15, and it was because all these Gentiles were being saved. And there's this group that thought, well, wait a second. This is a Jewish thing. I mean, this is just for us. So let's just kind of keep in our little holy huddle. Let's just keep it with us. But then Paul's bringing in all these people, all these Gentiles, confessing Jesus as Lord, the Spirit's falling on them, and what do we do? And so they have this big council, this big controversy in Acts 15, and they finally decide, well, I guess Gentiles can be Christians too. And so it spreads. It spreads. God's plan of redemption spreads. And then here we come to, First Peter, in which he gives a great description of what he believes the church to be. And it's this culmination of all of Scripture. It's this culmination here. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 again. See if you don't recognize some of these themes. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's a spiritual temple. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through worship. And and when Peter looks at the church, he says, this is what the church is. You're you're forming another temple, kind of like Solomon's temple, in which the Shekinah glory is going to come and fill, but the blocks are you. And, And your lives are to be so interlocked with one another. That together you form something collectively beautiful, this temple of the Lord. And Paul says the same thing when he says you or y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. When we come together, God's Spirit blows in our midst. And that's why you can't just listen to a John Piper sermon, you know, as good as that is in your car. You know, maybe even lift your hands in some parts during worship afterwards and call that church. That's not church. That's not part of God's plan of redemption. That's not going to change the world. We have to interlock our lives together and let God work in our midst. That's church. Peter says that we are being built as a spiritual house in order to be a holy priesthood. Once again, what's a holy priesthood? People who point others to God. God. Constantly pointing others to God. And so collectively, we, we, we're so joined together. We live lives so radically different. People see us, and they see that as a giant arrow that points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verses 11 and 12 tell how we do this. How we do this. Beloved, <clears throat> I urge you as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. Peter says that once again, we're sojourners, common language. A language throughout the Bible of Abraham and his calling. We're sojourners. Uh, but he uses actually a technical term here. This is not just a foreigner who comes in for a visit. This is not a foreigner who is sightseeing. This is not a foreigner who, who's coming to make a little money and then go back to their home. He's using the term a resident alien, a resident foreigner. This is someone who has come in. They're an outsider, but they've come here to live permanently. That's what he calls the church. your are resident foreigners. You're staying. You're committed to your neighborhoods. You're committed to the places where God is planting you. And then he says, and and we're we're to somehow keep our distinctiveness. He says you're to be pure, but we're also to engage the world. And and I'll flesh that out in just a second, but we're we're, we're to keep ourselves pure. How how does he phrase that? Um, He says that we are to, to Flee from these passions. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, they may see, um, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. And in verse 11, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And so he's saying that as a church, we are morally pure. We're committed to these, these deep morals. Yes, that should isolate us from the world. But we're not going to let it. Because we're going to engage the world. And Christians were certainly considered weird and foreigners. And you know, the the early Christians were considered cannibals. You read some of the earliest writings against Christianity, and they called them cannibals because they met together in secret and they ate somebody's body. And they were drinking blood. They were terribly misunderstood. And then they said, you know what? The Christians, they practice incest because they call everybody brother and sister. So there's incest going on there. And Christians were so misunderstood. They were foreign. And the church is going to always be that. We're going to always be that. The world's not going to understand our values. Christians would have been thought to be very weird if they said, no, sex is within marriage or homosexuality is wrong because sex outside of marriage and homosexuality were just prevalent and accepted. But Christians said, no. We'll keep ourselves morally pure. But they didn't let that isolate themselves. They engaged their culture. And so the world, it's in this kind of dilemma because they're going to look at the church and they're going to revile you. They're going to think you're evil, actually, because of all your views of all these moral issues. But then they're going to look at how you love the poor, how you love the enemies, your enemies, how you fight for justice. And it says they're going to give glory to God. So they're going to both revile you and they're going to praise you. And they're going to give glory to God. It, like Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And so that's, that's what the church is. It's kind of almost in two worlds. We are distinct. We are separate. But in the same time, we engage. We're both blessed and reviled. And that's our vision for this church as well. I want us to love God so passionately that we will be misunderstood. We will be misunderstood and we will be reviled by those who do not know God. But then I want us to love our neighbor so fervently and to fight for justice so readily that the world praises us and they give glory to God. We want both. That's what the church is. This is how we can be a royal priesthood. It's how we can be a holy nation. That's the calling of the church. I want to just take some some time to tell tell you how our church fits into that. Permit me just a little bit of time to tell how, how I think our church fits into this. It's a continuation of this theme. We have the same calling to be a light into the world. Next week, our church is going to be one-year-old. Can you believe that? One-year-old. How many of you were at our house when we went first Sunday, March 30th? A few of you, yeah. Um, You know, we we gathered at our house, and that was a result of prayer over a lot of years, and and then God's just slowly starting to grow us. We want to be a church that preaches the Word of God rightly, that does the um, ordinances rightly. I want us to be a place that has authentic community, that reaches out to our neighbors. And I think we're doing a number of things well. Not perfect by any means. There's other churches that do it better. But I think we're doing some things well. And so I want to commend you on some things that I see our church doing well. Um, And I want us to, to just kind of explain why we do some things the way we do them. And some of this you've heard me say before, but... Everything we do at this church is for a purpose. We always have our calling in mind, and everything is very intentional, from, from things like having the band set up on the side here instead of in the center, it is because we, we don't want to draw attention to the band. Now I just said that now, probably all of you will be looking over at the band. But that's not what we want. Now, we want to the, your attention to be on the word. That's up there. Attention to God. It's very intentional. I've mentioned it before, but we'll never use prayer as a transitional time. You're not ever going to pray, open your eyes, and the band's up on stage, or I'm over here. Um, or you, you pray, and you open your eyes, and they're all gone. We, we don't use prayer as a transitional curtain. It's, it's, that's not it. It's not we pray so we can move things around. When we pray, we want to engage the Lord. So that means there's going to be times of awkwardness. I hope you can deal with the slight awkward silences that we have to have you know, as, we, as we transition things around, but it's very intentional. It's very intentional. The reason that we read so much Scripture and we have joint confessions in our service is because we do believe that Scripture should be primary in our worship service. That the word of God is the sword of the spirit. And you can't just say spirit, spirit, spirit and yet not arm him. But God uses the word of God to change us. We believe that the word is central to worship. We're not going to be a church with a lot of programs that can occupy your every moment. um, Because we actually want to be a church that forces you outside of your holy huddle. This is forcing you. You know, we're never going to have a, a Starbucks at our church. And I'm not saying that's wrong. Other churches might be called, and that might be absolutely right for them. We're not going to do that at our church because we actually want you to go to Starbucks. We want you to get to know the people who serve you. We want you to get to know the people who frequent there so you can actually build relationships and be salt and light into this world. That's what we want. We're, we're, you know, we're meeting in a gym, at least it's not ours, we don't have access to it during the week, but we're, we're not going to have a gym because I want you to go to the why. I want you, as hard as it is, to actually try to live the gospel while you're playing basketball. You know, to, to interact with others, and so they actually think, man, that person's different. You know, the purpose of salt is to work itself into something that will naturally rot without you. So you need to go to the places that are rotting. Otherwise, you're useless, as Jesus says. The reason that we are here in Girls Inc. instead of um, our own building is because we believe it's the best way to fulfill our calling. I mean, I, I admit, you look around here, it's not the most conducive place for, uh, for worship, to, to get that emotion for worship. Our lights don't dim. Um, we've got kids' toys everywhere, girl empowerment signs <laughs> everywhere, you know, vending machines. A rock, we have a church with a rock climbing wall. Four basketball goals, hula hoops. I mean, it's just, it's not very conducive. It's the, it's the coolest church around. It is. It's intentional. If you can't worship here, you can't worship in a cathedral. That's not what it's about. But meeting here enables us to invest in other areas, which I believe is worship. Let me commend you on a few things you're doing very well. I want to commend you, church, on your giving. We're a small church. Look, we're small. This year alone, we've already set aside $31,000 for missions. Our church has. $31,000, this little church, for missions. I commend you on that. That is awesome. I mean, we've got like, what, maybe 80 people, and it's a very young demographic. It's not like any of you are heavy hitters or something like that. You're generous, you give, I commend you on that. That's good. I mean, to put this in perspective, our rent is $15,000 a year, so we pay, we're giving out double for missions, more than double for missions than we do for facility. I think that honors the Lord. That's exciting to me as a pastor. And actually, if you were to combine what we spend on rent, children's ministry, men's Women's ministry, the, the new trailer we had to buy out there, and facility, you were to combine that all together, we would still spend more missions than we do on all those things. I commend you on that. And I hope that number grows. It's exciting to see. Many of you are beginning to make investments in the lives of others outside of these walls. You're beginning to be stretched outside your comfort zone. And it's fantastic to see. Like Kristen leaving her job to go on the mission field in Mexico for a year. Awesome. Or Kate just deciding that, how can the Lord use my gifts? Art show so I could raise money for Peru. Fantastic. Um, You know, or Elaine or Amanda Blake leaving her job to go work in Cornerstone. I mean, just to see all these different things happening or Are people working in what we would call ordinary jobs, emailing me and asking, how can I do this job to the glory of God? Pray for me as I get to know my coworker. Fantastic. It's happening. Our intention in starting this church was to grow in our first year far more outside of these walls than we did inside of these walls. That's one of the reasons we didn't put up the signs you know, outside, we, we, we're not in the phone book. We, we didn't do any kind of advertisement because we wanted really for people to have seen our good deeds before they even hear about our church or visit our church. It was exciting to see even things like, you know, focus on Fairfield where over 40 of you showed up. Over, that's, that's over half of you showed up to work there. Every Tuesday night, you're going to the Woodlawn Family Homeless Shelter and cooking dinners. It's awesome. We're growing outside these walls. I think we're understanding what Jeremiah meant when he said we're to seek the shalom of the city. Home groups are growing. I loved it that I received so much hate mail from you guys when I suggested us breaking up our groups a few months ago. So let's break up our groups and kind of reform them. And man, you guys wanted to lynch me. When I said that, like, there's no way you're breaking up our group. Man, that was thrilling to hear that because you were like, we are so committed to one another. If you put me in another home group, then our home group's going to just, we're going to meet on our own. That's good. Uh, let me give you an update real quick about where we're going. I get a lot of questions about church membership, church government. And we're an elder led church. James Kling, Ryan DeVillaneu, Corey Scoggin. Thomas Ritchie, they're functioning right now as what I would call provisional elders. They've not been installed, I've not brought them in front of you, and installed them as elders for a couple of reasons. Once again, we do this purposely, very intentionally. For last year now, we've been meeting together every month to pray for this church, seek God's heart. For months now, we've been going over a 40 plus page doctrinal statement line by line. To make sure we're all on the same page. To make sure that we know what, what we want this church to believe. We want to be in agreement to this. I've sent out references to their bosses to hear, what is their character like at work? We want, I want to get all of, the, all of that back before I bring them before you and say, these are our elders. And once we get elders, then we'll have membership that I hope it, it is meaningful and significant. Um, I thank God for the work he's doing here, for his church universal, and for our ability to be a part of that. Um, For this local church to be empowered by his spirit, to be built up together, to seek the shalom of places like in Woodlawn, in Peru, um, all over the world. And pray with me. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this church. We are not perfect at all. But Lord, you're doing some really cool things. As a pastor, it just thrills my heart to see how you're growing us up outside of these walls. We are small. But Lord, you're using us and I give you thanks. I pray we would never, ever, ever be a church that says, if only we had more money, we could guard us from that. Money is never the obstacle for a church. I pray that you guard us from that, that you would draw us on our knees, and that we would pray fervently, that we would go into our communities, we would get to know our neighbor, we would love our neighbor, we would go down to places like Woodlawn or Ensley, and we would seek the welfare of those places. Guard us from heresy from ever not being centered on your word. May we truly come to understand your gospel through your word and may that change us. God, we ask that you would bless this church, that you would use this church for your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, our Redeemer. Amen.